Welcome to Mums in Film. I'm Ruby Challenger, a screen director and mother of two young girls. Each week, I'm talking to an incredible mother in the film industry. I want to learn how mothers juggle this gruelling industry, as well as raise their beautiful children. Where we are born and live and give birth to our babies is integral to our story. My mother gave birth to me in Melbourne, on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And before I turned one, we moved to Sydney and I was raised in the paradise that is Bondi Beach on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. For more than 70,000 years, they have been hunting and fishing here, living and working here. I have given birth to both of my babies in Randwick, which is also on the Gadigal land. And recently, our family has had a sea change moving to Umina, home of the Gurungai tribe, part of the Darkinjan Nation. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional lands that you're standing on around the world, wherever you are as you listen to this. And I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and thank them. Thank them for looking after the land that I've lived on, that I've worked on, that I've given birth on, and that I've played on for 35 years. This season of Mums in Film is brought to you by Screen Vixens, a collective of female-identifying intersex and non-binary producers working in the Australian screen industry. Check out their website at screenvixens.com to join. I love the pink hair. It's one of those funny things that I'm like, it's so great. And it makes people smile, I always think. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming to Mums in Film tonight, Danielle. My first night interview. I love it. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for having me. I do lots of night interviews. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. I do a lot of my work at night. Like we, me and my writer are always working at night for Mm -hmm. till 12 at night or whatever. So today we have Danielle Bosenberg. She is an award-winning editor with films screened at Berlin, Toronto, Clermont-Ferrand, Tribeca, Palm Springs, Sydney, Melbourne and Heartland. Danielle's recent work includes independent feature Lonesome, written and directed by Craig Borham, which looks stunning, by the way. Can't wait to see that. Colin from Accounts for Binge and Easy Tiger and stands totally, completely fine in 2021. Danielle was elected president of the Australian Screen Editors Guild and she lives in Sydney, the Gadigal, with her husband, and who is a screenwriter and showrunner, Sam, and their three daughters, Matilda, 18, Sunday, 16, and Asha, 12, as well as their two Aussie Bulldogs, Frank, 8, and Rafi, 2, and to expand on where they live in, they live on the Camaragal and Borragal lands. So thank you so much for coming on tonight, Danielle. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to finally meet you properly. I've spied you at various industry events because you also sport pink hair from time to time. I do. (laughs) I've seen you in the crowd and another fellow pink haired person. I know I love it and I love it because I, I love that and then Instagram kind of connections I, like I'm quite a sucker for a really good DM relationship as well yeah, and those absolutely. kind of things so I love that like you've been on my Instagram journey and I've been on yours for a while and now we're finally meeting and so yeah it's fantastic it's so great. lovely so I have started doing the podcast with a snapshot of where you're at this week like today this hour this week this month whatever kind of snapshot you feel like doing so if you're open to that I've been sharing mine so that the listeners get a sense of I suppose like the long-term vision of like oh what's happening this week for someone who's like in the trenches yeah just to be really raw so I was trying to think what to share about this week and this week I think it's it remains hard. So my listeners will know that I, we've moved and it's been really hard finding care up here because there's all these Sydney people up here and there's no care. There's, there's just too many kids, basically. That mixed with a deepening obsession with Montessori and stuff like that. And I've just ended up pulling Scout out of daycare because the two-hour drive to and from daycare was killing me and all of these things. So I'm at this stage now where I'm trying to figure out how to both 
remain relevant as a worker in the industry, obviously who's not on a big job at the moment and the kids will go into care once that happens, but also rock the stay-at-home mum thing for a minute because I'm like, this is what I'm doing. I I can't fight it too hard. And so drilling really deep this week, what I've been thinking about is how difficult it can be to find that switch off between the two places when you don't have full-time care or even part-time care. So it's like, how do I see the emails coming through and go, yep, I'm going to reply to them tonight and not forget to reply to them tonight. So it's like kind of mental overload because that thing of being with small children, I've got a one-year-old and a under four and they just, every second of the day at the moment is mum or the one-year-old's cannot be put down for one second. So I find that my head is throbbing by the end of the day and I can barely breathe and there's part of me that's no how to keep going right now and then again fronting up to those like emails going yeah so excited can't wait but also being totally aware that our industry people reply to an email in a second and I'm not I'm taking 24 hours to reply to an email oh my gosh yeah so that's my snapshot is like how do I balance and again it's the kind of toxicity of the phone I don't want to be on the phone with the kids and there's almost no point being on the phone with the kids when I'm I'm not actually replying to that email in 10 seconds because I do like to think about my reply. What's the point of having it even with me? Should I just turn all the notifications off? So anyway, if anybody's listening, send me your comments on what you're doing with technology because that's probably the most painful little bit at the moment for me in terms yeah, of absolutely. crossover of juggling of the motherhood and work. And I absolutely relate to all of those things, even though my kids are a bit older. My interesting that we should be speaking this week and you should be asking for my snapshot because most of the time I'm one of those, I'm sure we all are, every every working mother is a kind of circus performer with the spinning plates and you've just got to make sure that you keep all of the things turning and the plates keep spinning. And in the last week I dropped three plates. One of them was not, none of them were shockingly awful. One of them was really okay. Two of them were I didn't feel great about. One was a professional plate and one was a family plate. And all fine in the end, but I'm not used to dropping plates. And I think that we carry the burden of that plate spinning very deeply and hate letting people down. And I think that it's that constant tension between being the best possible parent, but also being the best possible, most engaged, creative. And then this, and then today I'm working on a, a premium drama at the moment, the back block of six, so three episodes. And while I'm working, I'm in director's cut at the moment. So I've spent my several weeks assembling as the shoot's been going on. I'm in this intense kind of director's cut period And we sent out our first cut to the producers this week. We're waiting for feedback. We thought notes would come today. They didn't. That was fine. We we spent some time on another episode that needed some work. And I don't have time to check messages or emails while I'm working. It's a really full-on, I'm sitting there. I've got the director with me. We're just reviewing stuff and looking at rushes and putting finding music and sound effects and building the story of this episode all day for 10 hours at least and there were a flurry of messages coming through on my phone and it was all about my daughter's my 12 year old daughter's soccer team and how the plans for getting the girls to soccer had changed and I just wasn't in a position to respond straight away how can you and that's the gap for me it's I'm all in doing whatever I'm doing or I'm trying to be all in, but there's this constant niggle and it's either at work with this buzzing phone thinking I really should, that's quite a few little messages that have come through. I should just check those. Conversely, when I'm at home, it's thinking about work and being caught in those kind of thoughtful moments. And my youngest daughter in particular being worried because I look like I'm not engaged because I'm not engaged. I look like I'm not happy because I'm problem solving in my head about my job. So I find that the hardest thing, just that the constant struggle and this last week in particular has been bad, just 
more complex than normal. Yeah. And Sam, my partner's about to go to LA for two weeks. He leaves on Saturday. So I'm yeah. in terrible timing for that trip. It's amazing for him. It's not great for me because all of this just becomes amplified because at least when I'm working like this, because we're both freelance creatives, often one of us is in a less intense period than the other one. And so that person can coordinate the soccer pickups and drop-offs and pick up a barbecue chicken if there's no time to cook dinner and do all of that stuff. And at the moment, we're both working like mad people. Have you guys often tried to intentionally balance that or is it just a beautiful, happy universal where you have a job and then he's not working as much and then he has has that been intentional or not not really I definitely took a hit when the kids were little I really put my career on hold to be a present parent and because I had not yet broken into television so I was juggling very low paid jobs short films that sort of thing which I really valued but when push came to shove, they weren't the priority. I was the one looking after the kids. And I don't regret that. Mm. I'm very glad I was around for them when they were little. Since going to film school. So when I went to afters, my oldest two were three and five. And while at afters, I fell pregnant with my third. So by the time I graduated, I was heavily pregnant. And there were a lot of people who thought I was crazy to do that at a time when I was trying to get my career back on track. But I was determined that the two things were not mutually exclusive, that I could get my career back on track and have a larger family. And initially, I think working with a baby was quite good, particularly for female producers. You know, there's obviously a huge difference on the success of a job in terms of being a working parent when you have sympathetic producers. Mm -hmm. Would you split that? go deeper and say rather than female male would you say female mother producer would would it yeah probably kind of blunt but do you think that female producers who aren't mothers have weren't as as understanding like I don't necessarily think it's a gender divide I think it's a parent not parent divide Mm. parent father producer possibly still lower on the understanding because they're not Mm. the ones struggling it so That's how I would probably. Yeah. Look, I think as a general rule, that's probably really fair. The first jobs I did, though, was with a female producer who was not a mother. There were a team of women who, actually three women on that job, who were really supportive. And I bought the bassinet and the baby slept under the edit desk and I worked my breaks around breastfeeding and they didn't bat an eyelid. They were really supportive now, but that was a short-term gig. That was three Mm -hmm. days. So I'm not sure they would have been able to support a longer term project, but I have had some experience with women who are not mothers who have still been really flexible. Oh, that's amazing. And we can get into, I'd love to ask a bit more about specifically editing and how that could accommodate mothering. Because, for example, I was talking to a producer two weeks ago who said she had a production designer come on just earlier mm-hmm. of doing a six-week pre. She did a three-month pre or something and just made that work. And I was interested to hear that because so often people like, no, it all has to happen at the same time, push ahead. And with editing, you you are bounded by a lot of, of things. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you say you've dropped three plates. I dropped two this week. And so now I'm like, now I've told you, I'm like, cool, what's the third going to be? Because <laughs> I, and I think happening three. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, I have been slogging my ass off this year with the move, with the kids, with trying to work and being quite proud of myself that I haven't dropped any plates yet. Although it's been super, super crazy. I'm like, no, nah, like still head just above water and then dropped two. It was just bawling on the first one and I was like this is that was a bit of an intense reaction but yeah and that's the other thing we'll always give ourselves a harder time than anyone else will give us in the general scheme of things these plates I dropped were not significant but to me they were because I try really hard not to drop any plates Mm. we all do yeah yeah tricky times Jumping into my first area, which is the juggle, which we're already deep into, but you are employed on a contractual basis. Have you had long-term gigs, like over a year time gigs, or are you always no, freelance? Not over a year. I've had 
several months at a time. And most TV jobs are three or four months, two to four months, occasionally a bit longer than that. But so far my jobs have been sort of several months. Yeah. And one of the great problems that I think screen creators in particular struggle with is that there's no childcare system that supports freelance work where you need a lot of help for four months and then you might not want any help because you might want to be present when you're around. And there's just no system if you want consistency for your kids. There are agency nannies, but then you can't guarantee you're going to get the same person week to week. And if you really want your kids to have a relationship with their carer, it's diabolical, absolutely mm. diabolical. And this is this has been the case for me since my kids were born. So even though, and I'm really glad to be included in the podcast because even though my kids are older, it doesn't get any easier. And in fact, the needs of teenagers are really intense. And a, a very smart friend said to me when my kids were little, she said, actually, it's not so hard to find care for little ones, but when you really need to be around is when they're teenagers. And if you're not there when they're ready to talk, you lose the window. Yeah. And at the time I was thinking, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> so hard because I was deep in the sleepless nights and the nappies mm. and the nonverbal communication mm. and the potentially not speaking to another adult for the entire day. And all of that, that intense, lonely, high stakes kind of life. But it's always been in the back of my mind. And of course, there are lots of things that are easier once your kids are at school and then in high school. But she's not wrong, actually. Mm. There is something about being available to a teenager when they are ready to talk that you can't schedule that. You just, you can't. And it gets really tricky. Both my older girls struggled a little bit post-COVID, during COVID and post-COVID with mental health problems. Lots of teenagers have. So I think many. Yeah. while I don't think there were any winners during that period, I think everybody struggled. But I think older teenagers in particular really took it hard. Also, I think kids in the kind of, I guess, eight to 10 kind of range who maybe after the first year forgot what it felt like to live in a life pre-COVID. Their kind of entire living memory was living with restrictions. Anyway, I'm digressing a little bit, but yes, I think there's no care that really helps freelance workers. What I did do when I was at film school, also we get a lot of support from family or most young families want support from their family. I was in a bit of a unique situation when my oldest was one. Shortly after she turned one, my dad died quite suddenly. And then I found out the week that we had his funeral, I found out I was pregnant with our second. And then when I was in hospital having my second, my grandmother died. And that those quite significant deaths really changed the fabric of the family and and for my mom in particular, it was a time for her to rediscover who she was and she's a visual artist and I think had also compromised a lot of that to be a mother and a wife. And it was time for her to sell the family home, find a space that was just for her, really engage in her art making. And that meant that she wasn't regularly going to be available to help with the kids. She's an incredible, engaged and intelligent woman who has a lot of interests and she was never one of those women who was going to live for her grandchildren. What she did do, though. Yeah, I saw it on your stories, actually, that you had yeah. your daughter helping her paint a mural. My mum did do art lessons with my middle daughter, who's, who's a keen artist as well. So when I decided to go to afters, she wasn't able to step in and nanny, but she did offer financial help. And we used a local find a babysitter website and interviewed a bunch of women and found a nanny who ended up being the most glorious gift. She stayed with us for five years 
she wow yeah and you mentioned Montessori earlier my kids all are all Montessori kids and the best. <laughs> so great. I was a Montessori kid actually I was one of the the foundation students at Camaragal Montessori in Cameroon right. we have a long attachment to Montessori schooling and as you would know that's quite an intense schedule as well. It's not long daycare. It's nine till 12, five mornings a week, but when they were that age. So I'm at afters and the kids have got to get to school for sort of 8.30 and then they have to be picked up at midday. So we had this nanny who was with us. And again, see, so we were supposed to have her three days a week and my husband was going to do two days and then he got busy. So she ended up, we had a fourth day and then we had a fifth day. And anyway, Many, many parents at Montessori drop off and pick up would try and poach her because she was so incredible and she was loyal and beautiful and treated them like her own kids. She was honestly amazing. So we had her for five years, which meant by that stage, my youngest was still quite young, but the other two were really established in school and could do a whole lot of things at home for themselves. So if I was feeding or dealing with Asha, they could go and help themselves to things or help me help them. Can I just clarify the arrangement with her just to drill into with your nanny? Was she employed on an hourly basis? Did she live with you guys? Did she take other jobs as well? Like how many hours a day would you have her during that time? And if you don't mind, was that really expensive? Because that's the stuff I'm trying to work out at the moment and it's really kind of like hard. It is really hard. And look, as I said, we got really lucky. I've heard lots of horror stories or, and not horror stories because the nannies themselves did anything wrong or weren't beautifully caring people, but just it's hard to find someone who's happy to commit to that kind of arrangement for a long period. I think often there it's a short-term job while you're studying or a lot of people who are traveling come and do nannying while they're in the country and then they want to move on. Keita was our nanny, so divine. So she started, as I said, three days a week. And I think it was starting with the 12 o'clock pickup. And she was with us until about seven at night. And it was really just, we didn't really ask her to do any chores or anything, but it was playing with the kids and cooking their dinner, at least looking after bath and so on, partly because we had also done a little bit of the long daycare thing. And Picking kids up, as you would well know, at the end of the day when they're you're harried, they're harried, they haven't eaten, you end up being the parent who, who's just about the business. You've got to feed them, you've got to get them in the bath. You don't get any of the fun stuff. It's just all the business of getting your kids ready for bed. Mm. And, um, we thought the advantage to having someone in the house was that we could come in and be there for reading bedtime stories or hearing about their day or playing a, a little game or mm. She didn't live with us. We're in a tiny house because Sydney's so expensive. When we bought this house, it was two bedroom and all three of our kids were in the same room for a long time. That's and- really awesome to hear, thank you, by the way, because <laughs> I'm like, that's totally possible. Kids don't yeah, have to have yeah. their own room. Yeah. Look, we live in an area in Sydney where that is really unusual and a lot of people thought we were a bit strange, but yeah. we wanted to live close to the city. We live in an expensive suburb and it was all we could afford we just moved out of a one-bedroom apartment in Bondi yeah which I I actually think we could have stayed in for another year easily because the kids let's be honest all sleep in the same bed with us so yeah (laughs) need a bedroom for them yeah we had a set of bunks and a cot it's a really small bedroom a set of bunks and a cot in the room and a change table that was all so we had their wardrobe in our bedroom their chest of drawers in the hallway it was crazy but it was a small but happy home yeah in fact so my oldest has just moved to the UK for a gap year so that's a whole other story but until she left she and her next youngest sister have shared a bedroom so they've shared their whole lives those two and then Asha took over the little room so we renovated and they got their own room they got a bigger room but they've still shared until how did you make are you in a flat how did you make another room we're in a semi Okay. So a long skinny house. Yep. <laughs> and we, we were able to renovate the back. So we, we added another bedroom and a and a bigger kitchen because that was all a bit wild as well. But getting back to your question, so no, my my reason for explaining that is we couldn't afford to have an au pair. We couldn't have mm-hmm. anyone with us. We just didn't have the space. So it mm-hmm. was starting with pickup at, at midday, coming home, playing with the kids, bathing them, giving them dinner, 
And then we would get home from work and we'd have a quick chat with Nanny, get a bit of a debrief about the day. And then she'd go home and we'd hang out with the kids and read books and put them to bed. And then, as I said, my husband ended up getting more and more busy. So it ended up being five days. And then I guess over the course of the, then my oldest moved to primary school. So she had more regular school hours. So then she would pick up the middle child at midday, come home, play with her, go and get the older child at three, bring her home, help with homework. She would, if we didn't have enough groceries, she might take the kids up to Harris Farm and buy a bunch of fruit and veg for us and that kind of thing. But generally it was just for her to be with the kids. And the great thing was the kids didn't, for a long time, we didn't explain the deal. They had no idea she was being paid to be. They just thought she was just this awesome person who used to hang out with them. And she was young and energetic and they just had a ball. So they were like, this is great. This is awesome. We've got like this extra parent. We don't even know if she found. Who is this this woman? So it was great. It was really fantastic. And she's now got two beautiful daughters of her own. Oh, lovely. uh, We've stayed in touch. We'll be eternally grateful to her. Yeah, yeah. And so to rewind a little bit, she Mm -hmm. came on, and I know you gave me the ages, but just to clarify, you had done kind of mainly full-time parenting with your first two up until, can I get a picture? Was that about five years that you did that you you were off the tools a little bit or what was that? I was doing, yes. So I, until they were three and five, that's when I started film school. So prior to that, I'd done a little bit of, I I started my career in advertising. So Mm -hmm. I was working in an ad agency because I just wanted to cut every day. And Mm -hmm. it was a great way to just work on the craft and negotiate feedback and deadlines and learn all of that stuff so that was a really great training ground but I wanted to be a storyteller and too often in commercials the stories compromised for the product and I didn't want to be restricted to 30 second bites when I found out I was pregnant with my oldest I went on maternity leave initially but then went back to negotiate more time I'd said originally I'd take nine months and I went back to say I'd like 12 And they really want to be back. And the two men who ran that company put a lot of pressure on, no, you'll be fine. You should come back. We really need you. And I just thought that's all I need to know. So I resigned and never went back. So then I started cutting short films and I did a little bit of early reality shows. There was a show, Dancing with the Stars, which I think is still on. But in one of the early, very early seasons, I worked on that because the background packages, which were the things that were pre-edited, most of that work was happening on the weekend because mm-hmm. the producers would be in the studios with the dancers Monday to Friday, they'd be logging their material and then they'd get editors to cut together the packages on the weekend. I was able to do a little bit of that because I was for the kids Monday to Friday and then Sam would be with the kids Saturday, Sunday, or my mum would help if he was working. So I was doing a little bit here and there, earning a little bit of money and cutting short films in my spare time. So often sitting up at night cutting films, which I'm sure you would relate to. So I was keeping my hand in where possible, but not earning a lot of money, that's for sure. To be department specific, in terms of editing, I've been talking about this brain drain and we've both been talking about it of being somewhere else in your brain. When you were doing, for example, the Dancing with the Stars on the weekend, can you remember were you finding it distracting during the week to be with the kids? Did you find a split in your heart during that or was it with editing? No, until the footage arrives, full on with the kids and then I edit and then I can go back to the Was it an easy split or was it a difficult one? I think it was easier then. It's not easy anymore, but it used. I think it used to be easier. I think because the physical demands of being with the kids were so great. And I think also there was less we could do on our phones and things. I think you were talking about digital technology and I think that's got a lot to do with it, that phones back then, yes, I could check email and people could text message me, but it didn't feel anywhere near as overwhelming as it does now. I don't think I had Instagram or Facebook on my phone. I don't think I was checking the newspaper on my phone. I don't think I was doing Wordle, all of those things. that People that... probably weren't apologising for replying late after half yeah. an hour. Yeah. That's, I'm the stress level for me at the moment. Absolutely. People go, sorry, I'm replying late to you. And I'm like, it, I said it was this half it was an two hour hours ago. Exactly. Like two hours ago, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll chill out. Yeah. So... I did find it easier to separate then. And because the work that I was doing on the weekend was very, these isolated packages, it was that week in the studio. So there wasn't a lot of 
The next weekend, it was going to be a whole new bunch of things that we were cutting together. So there was no hangover in terms of the creative thinking. It was just all made in the room and then we walked away and it was fine. Whereas these days I'm on something for a lot longer. So I'm thinking about it when I'm driving home and I'm thinking about it in the shower and I'm thinking about it while I'm cooking and I'm, that's where the bleed happens. And that's why it's a lot harder now. Yeah. And so that's an interesting question that I have about boundaries, which is Mm -hmm. growing up in a family of artists myself and Mm -hmm. the line being so blurred, which was a wonderful blurring because my parents could drop everything to be there when I was a teenager and I needed it and also but also were not present a whole lot in their faces and their souls a lot of the time so it's a very confusing so and you've just alluded to that you know and and, sorry you've been talking about all night that that it is really hard when you're cooking dinner and you're still thinking about it can you talk to me about boundaries and how Mm. you try to manage them emotionally or just any thinking you've been doing about it or the difficulties Uh, yeah yeah I think it's probably the greatest struggle for me I particularly notice that all three of my kids they're beautiful they're all creative themselves they're all bright and they're all sensitive and what I've noticed is I can tell if I'm distracted and they've noticed because they almost start to manage me like they try and engage me in a story that they know historically has made me laugh or has Wow. Will make me feel happy or, and I can feel them doing it. Like I, I know what they're doing and it makes me feel both deeply ashamed that I'm stuck in this work mode and that I'm not engaged, but also really irritated that I'm now being managed and I, I can see what they're doing. And I'm like, it's <laughs> this horrible, I get it, but I also wish I could fast forward 30 years and say to them, see, it's like it it had nothing to do with you. It's not, I'm loving being here with you. I just need to process this thing, this thought or this problem, and then I'll be right back. I just need some time. Yeah, it, it is the hardest of the things to balance for me is that being really present whatever I'm doing and I thought I'd be really good at it and as I said when I started I think I did a pretty good job but I'm finding it much harder so when I'm I'm just conscious if I don't walk through the door with a big smile on my face and throw my arms around the kids I can hear them coming up the side path with my laptop and my all my bits that I've carried my water bottle and all the things I've carried to work all day and I'm as soon as my key hits the lock I can hear mom and and the dogs are there and the dogs are jumping all everyone's so excited and it's great but it's also it's beautiful but it's a lot when you I've been spending the whole trip home going what are we going to do about scene 27 it's just Mm. working and I think that line of dialogue maybe isn't helping us and maybe if what if we could write a line of ADR that would fix that problem so I'm in that headspace and then I've just got this assault of beautiful dogs and people who just want me to be with them. Which is lovely but so confronting. Yes. And, the, and it's that thing of the Instagram shaming that's going on and it's beautiful but also like super intense where it's yeah, appreciate every second with your kids and you're like, I am trying to and yeah. it's really oppressive for you to say that all the time. And I talk to my husband about it as well and it's mm-hmm. more obvious in a less desk jobby role that he so he used to be a chef and now he's training right. as an electrician yeah, and right. he would come home even before we had kids and it took us a while like we've been married for 10 years now but it took us a while at first where he'd come home and I was like you're just being mean to me I don't I haven't done anything <laughs> fuck off kind of thing and then he'd and then finally I was like oh you're in chef mode yeah stop being yeah. a chef stop being a head chef leave head chef at the door because mm. you're bossing me around like one of your kitchen hands and I'm not and we talk about it a lot he sits he tells me he's actually sit in the car for a few seconds to try and get rid of that now he's on construction sites very masculine aggressive energy not that he's he's not very much that kind of man but like he's in it all day yeah so So it's interesting that we so many people have to shake work off and how Mm. do we do that do you have any routine or do you just take a deep breath when you put the key in the door Yeah, I take a deep breath. It used to be, I've realized the value of public transport because I think Mm. when I was catching the bus to work, that was the perfect, or a walk. So I've always, the public school that my kids go to is about 25 minutes walk away. And 
I've made them walk since day one, all three of them, because Asha's just started in year seven, because I think that time is really important Mm. and setting them up to have 20 minutes on the way to school to process what's coming and 20 minutes on the way home to process what they went through and and get ready for home. And I think that was the same as getting the bus to work back in my advertising days. I'd jump on the bus. I could read a book. I could stare out the window and it was decompression time. And I had a friend who worked with me who lived near me and we would talk about food. What did we have last night? He was a foodie. I used to be a foodie. It's one of the things that's gone a bit by the wayside as a working parent is I don't have the time to cook and prepare the way I would have liked to but there was a time when I thought if I wasn't in film I might be a chef and so we would talk we would plan our meals this was all before kids yeah and that was what I would do and I think now in the race to get home I do try to listen to podcasts and things just to take my brain away Mm. from my specific work problems and concentrate on something else or play music in the car when I'm coming home from work and that helps but also more and more unfortunately that travel time has become the time to make phone calls that I need to return that I've ignored all day so I end up just trying to tick boxes on my way home get stuff done get stuff off my shoulders so that when I do get home I can have some time with the kids yeah I'm still learning how to do how to do all of that to be honest and you're talking about coming back so I'm assuming a lot of jobs nowadays are off-site for you have you ever had periods where you have work on site at home yes like how when the kids were younger how did you manage the boundaries of physically being in the same house yeah actually I have a I do have a funny story about that so I did often I did always work from home initially because budgets mostly I was working on things where people didn't have money for facilities and um, I had editing software on my computer and so I would just cut from home then you've met my husband he has a very loud voice and quite a large presence like he's a you feel him walk into a room and I'm sitting at his desk at the moment and my desk if you can see the back of that chair that's my desk is our bedroom that's okay his desk and And that's your bedroom is it behind you our bedroom Yeah. yeah okay if he's here working and I'm there, it's a lot. Yeah. So I actually, there was a really crappy but well-positioned building in St. Leonard's right near the train station that was going to be, it was owned by developers who were, were saving up their pennies to knock it down and they were offering commercial space really cheaply. So for four years, I had a room there because I thought I've got to get out of the house because the other thing is if I'm home, I'm home constantly. So I'm just getting my head into something and then one of the kids is in here. So I took out this lease in this really horrible building. But my room, once I got into my room, it was beautiful. I had my things in there. I had my books. I had art on the wall. I had a sofa. It was just my happy space. So I would leave and go to St. Leonard's and spend the day there and then come home. And I think that period too was much better for me in terms of separating work and mm-hmm. Yeah. But I've just, so now that I've, I'm working mostly in broadcast television, it's always in a facility. So I might be in Annandale or Redfern or Moore Park or in those sorts of areas where you can't avoid the world. There's lots of people. There are parking problems. It's all a bit more. And you can't public transport because you're changing place too much yes and just because of where I live and where those facilities are there's not a really great direct route so it would be multiple buses and trains and then it's just then it becomes a time factor and if I want to get home at a reasonable hour to cook dinner for my kids then I need to drive so I can be home sooner but during COVID I returned to working from home you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast in the introduction the film Lonesome that I cut Mm. for Craig Borum which is an explicitly sexual gay film. I was cutting that from home during COVID and at that desk just there. And so that was really hard to navigate with kids at home because I was really aware of the content and needing to protect them from seeing something they might not understand. And I would have to, if I was going to be interrupted by a phone call, by Sam, by anything, make a point of having a screenshot to go to that was of 
something flowers graphic or flower exactly just to make sure and and get into the habit of doing that so that it became almost like an automatic response just to hit that thing and then pick up the phone or do whatever for fear of the kids walking in and being troubled by what they're seeing so at that point I really thought yeah I should not be working at home on Mm. this but we were in lockdown that was the last project I ended up doing so I was assembling at home and lockdown had lifted enough that by the time I got to director's cut I was able to work with the director in my studio in St Leonard's and that was much Mm -hmm. Uh, that's where we finished the film and that was the last film I cut there and then I gave it up because I haven't been back because I've been in these facilities and things which was a sad day but also a happy day because it was a sign of growth and moving into television and not needing a home space anymore yeah and so Asha being 12 do you still need care for her or is that do the other kids look after her how does I don't even know how you juggle kids at this age like what happens does she still need this is part of the reason I've dropped plates the last week is that it's evolving so my middle daughter is doing her HSC and she's doing a bunch of extension subjects which means that she has before and after school classes so prior to this it was okay because pretty much everyone was doing school hours and so Asha might get home and be home by herself for a short time but then one of her sisters would be home her older sisters would be home and they can be here with her she doesn't need me yeah Uh, but now this year with my older daughter deciding to pull up stumps on uni and have a gap year and my middle daughter doing the HSC and having these late classes now nine afternoons out of 10 they have a fortnightly timetable nine afternoons out of 10 Asha comes home to an empty home and this is why suddenly we're in this period of dropping plates because if anything goes wrong with our very intricately calibrated schedules she ends up at a loose end so On Mondays currently, she brings a friend that she's been to primary school with, comes home with her and they hang out together. And Mm -hmm. I'm friends with Evie's mum and that's all good. We understand that they're here alone and that's all fine. Also, they live locally and she also works in the gig economy. And so we do, we're not always both working. So one of us can be around or the other one can be around should the girls need us. Tuesdays, my mum picks Asher up and takes her to piano lessons and drops her home. Wednesdays, Asha, she's a musical, so she has an oboe tutor who comes to our home for an hour and then she goes to soccer training. Thursdays, she goes to my sister-in-law and every second Friday she's home alone, but she's allowed to watch TV on Friday afternoons so she can come home and put the TV on and that hours could pass and she's unaware. So we're really at the point where she's not quite comfortable being home alone for long periods and we don't want her to be home alone for long periods but she's too old for a babysitter or nanny particularly given then my middle daughter will be home an hour or so later she's just turned 17 she doesn't want someone else in the house she wants to just come home put on her sweats and make a milo and do her homework Uh, yeah so we're again we're in a period of transition where and I think this is probably where the greatest guilt comes for me is that Asher is the one who gets short shrift because I had the other two in quite quick succession they were both under two less than two years apart I was around a lot for them and Mm. there was this opportunity for me to reinvest in my career and I just had this little one and she's the one who's I think missed out the most and so when things go wrong or when someone's not quite getting what they need it's almost always her And I do carry a lot of guilt about that. You know, instead of having the classic middle child syndrome, I think we're going to end up in a family where there's like little child syndrome where she's, I didn't get the attention. And because we're just so much busier than we thought we would be, which is, it's they're good problems to have. We're very lucky, but they're not easy. Yeah. I've been wondering about, yeah, that. I don't have like siblings my own age. I've got some half sisters who are very much younger. One of them's six, so she's wow, um, closer yeah. in age to my my kids. Mm. So only child, never had any modeling of what it looks like, what family looks like to have other kids. And so there's this huge extra stress on me of what if that kid's doing their 
swimming classes does the other kid just have to sit there what is their life like and so Lux's life for her like the next few years is going to be following her older sister's things this is so bizarre like it's all so new to me was there can you talk to me about the decision to have kids and it's about role models in the Mm. industry and the decision you've already in advertising and making the jump to have kids can you talk about how old you were when you decided to do that if you had role models and then finally the age gap between second and third was that intentional or was that yeah can you talk to me about yeah yeah, absolutely so the role model question is an interesting one I don't think I was conscious of having a role model there was no one out there that I thought oh I want to do what they're doing I think that's part of the problem that we're all facing in the screen industry is that we don't really talk about the people who are out there who also have children. It's mostly been ignored, I think. There wasn't any active modelling, certainly. There weren't that many people flying the flag saying, hey, yes, look at me, I'm doing all of this and I'm a mum. So any modelling would have been more more passive, I think. Yeah, My mum was a role model absolutely she's a really remarkable person and a really wonderful artist and I can see now that she compromised that for us and for my dad because I've seen how much she's been able to grow as an artist since we became adults and since my dad died and she was doing the classic thing that a lot of women did of her generation which is she also did a teaching degree so when we were little to be around for us she would do teaching so relief teaching she did some art teaching she was involved in some local community art groups and things and so I guess I, I always thought yeah that she has this passion she has this ability and she's trying to do the juggle so that was inspiring to be her mother too was an amazing woman who was one of the pioneer handmade paper makers in Australia she incredible incredible woman married to an army man a colonel and had two sons who went through the military as well so they moved around a lot my mum went to 14 different schools and they didn't want that for us they wanted us to have more stability and we did we very much did my dad was a this is a little bit of a digression but I'm sorry but my dad was a a I love digressions (laughs) my dad was a corporate lawyer but I think also a a bit of a frustrated film director my parents loved Sydney Film Festival and that was the other thing when I was a kid they would disappear for two weeks in June and we would that's fabulous where are mum and dad and as part of that every year my dad bought me a ticket to go and see the dandy films yeah and so I would depending on the time of year take the day off school or in school holidays and go and spend the whole day at the state theater just watching short films and that's obviously where my interest was sparked so in terms of role modeling I guess I had a little bit of that from my parents valuing the arts they were involved in theater as well they were involved in setting up the Nimrod theater and really interested in the arts they were taking me to plays and big music lovers dad played jazz we had so quite a lot of lots of friends were actors and that kind of thing actors academics so it was an interesting house to grow up in so I had modeling from them in terms of modeling in the editing world not really so much as I mentioned and in fact it's interesting as president of the guild I look at our list of accreditees and accreditation in our guild is very hard to get we've got about 40 accreditees nationally but when you look at that list and you look at how many are women that's shocking enough but when you look at how many of those women are also mothers it's shocking genuinely and that's something I'd really I'm really trying to speak to and trying to make trying to change in my role as president but getting back to what you were saying about when did we decide to have kids? I I don't think I ever consciously thought, yeah, it wasn't a big plan to get married and have kids. I knew I really wanted a meaningful relationship. I met Sam when I was quite young. I was in third year uni. So we'd been together quite a long time, but it was actually more of a physio- physiological response to a friend having a baby. And I was holding the baby. He Sam reckons he can pinpoint the exact day and time when my biological clock started ticking because wow. it was like this weird 
response I had. And I can remember calling my mum and crying and saying, what is wrong with me? And she was like, oh, my God, for God's sake. Can you remember how old you were? Out of I, interest? My, I think it was in my mid-20s. Like what I would think is quite young to have a, a, such a strong response. Yeah. But I guess also having been in a relationship for a while, there was a stability and a sense that was possible and possibly even logical as a next step. Uh, yeah, and we were very lucky initially. We fell pregnant very quickly. The first time, the second time, we called it the Immaculate Conception because, as I said, my dad was sick and dying and that was, I don't even know how that happened, quite frankly. And then because of what we were going through at that time, I was pretty sure I wanted to stop it too because I just was not, I wasn't, to be honest, I was really thin and not particularly mentally well, having suffered such great loss and having these two young kids and Sam's one of five kids so he always wanted a big family and I just wasn't he kept trying to engage me in a conversation and I just thought if I have to make the decision now it will be a no I'm just not I can't do it so we parked it for a while so once things started to become a little bit more manageable with the kids I then wanted to pursue afters so I applied to afters and got in and then found out I was pregnant and had that what do I do what do I do what do I do because I can't drop out of afters halfway through and I ended up miscarrying that child and that's one of the reasons for the gap because I would have had a third a little bit more quickly and so I guess while that was devastating of course there was a silver lining was that I was able to go through with afters and then we were lucky enough to fall pregnant again in that year and I managed to have that baby successfully. Mm -hmm. So that's really, the gap was really around sort of family trauma and then losing a baby at 12 weeks yeah. and then needing a little bit of time to recover from that and having afters and the yeah. intensity. of That's so intense. That's so much yeah, at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And that was interesting too, because I was there with, I was one of the older people at afters at the time and I was there, I would work my ass off from the moment I got there till the moment I left. And these other beautiful, we had such a lovely department. All of the editors were fantastic. I'm very fond of them all and close with a lot of them. But they'd go and sit on the grass with their acoustic guitar and have a bit of a break and spend two hours in the sun. And I, and then I'd be like at whatever time I'm like, no, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to see my kids. Yeah, I worked really hard while I was there. But again, was that I think a one or a two year course? Just one year. A one, one year course, yeah. 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 So yeah. pretty wild. Oh, thank you for sharing all that. That's awesome. It's these choices that we're making are so difficult. Have you ever wrestled with how much? to work and how much to be with your children and that emotional toll on I suppose if you have wrestled with it it's probably because you're feeling like you can't maintain what it takes to succeed in the film industry or parenting responsibilities so can you talk to that wrestle yeah yeah what I have done historically is try and avoid working during school holidays so I'll try and take a job there. And it hasn't always been possible, but since moving into television, just trying to really look at the dates. If there are two blocks being offered, for example, one set of dates might be more favourable than the other and I'll pitch hard for that block. But as I said, Sunday's doing her HSC this year and I was offered a block of Royal Flying Doctors service, which is shooting in Broken Hill, and they have the whole team in Broken Hill, which is incredible, so amazing, and really rare for editors to get away jobs where you can go and be yeah. and live in that little kind of community. And as tempting as it was, the dates clashed with the trial exams. That was a no-brainer. I turned that job down. Yeah. It also depends a lot on what Sam's doing. So, for example, at the moment, we're both busy. So when I finish this job, which is intense, will continue to be intense. And I've just been extended. I was supposed to finish mid-May. Now looks like mid-June. I will do everything I can to keep next school holidays free. Yeah. For example, because I've worked so intensely for this sort of four or five months. Last year, Sam was working almost wholly from home. So I was able to commit to 
anything because he was working from home. The wrestle for me is a little bit around what the rest of the family are doing, school holidays, what Sam's doing. Sam's work is still a little bit independent of those complexities. He will take work. I don't think he's ever had to turn down work because I'm working. Can I ask, feel free to not answer, but is Mm. that, why is that? Why do you take on that responsibility? Uh, no no shade on that. Is it just yeah, because yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I love it and I want to be with the kids the most? Like, not the most, obviously, Sam. Love you. Great. What is it? It's probably more, look, it's a little bit of the patriarchal structures we live in. It's a little bit of the assumed role. It's a little bit of the history in my family of how we've managed things and the fact mm-hmm. that I did take the first few years out and really focus on doing the child rearing while Sam was building his career. It's a little bit around the fact that he can earn more than I can. Mm -hmm. So if it's a choice between the two of us working, it makes more financial sense for him to work. He's in an above the line role. I'm in a below the line role. It's, it's, there's not one answer to that. It's a very, it's complex, but also it's, I carry the guilt, I think, of the choices I make more than he might because I do think that's something that women struggle with that that sense of being divided I assume you know of the book The Divided Heart the Rachel Power book do you know that book I have but I actually haven't read it it's it's amazing it's it's all about balancing art and motherhood and it's lots of women talking about their juggle it really has made me feel less alone yeah no just knowing reading stories from other people and knowing that we're all in this together I've been excited by the release of this magazine which is exciting that it's a print magazine and it's entirely dedicated to creative mothers oh amazing mothers working in the creative so for anybody listening it's called how uh totally unaffiliated to this magazine but they're on their first issue and it's all about women who create and the mothers oh my god how cool that there's a print magazine about this. That's it does so feel funny. like a shift and maybe there'll never be a shift because we live with, I'm going to borrow the phrase, but a divided heart. Yeah. And, you know, what we talk about a lot in my family is there's now so much pressure for women to be at work and doing work and all of those things that it's really confusing for women who want to stay at home and want to actually that's why I'm like trying to encourage the answer doesn't have to just be all the patriarchal structures maybe it's because I want to be it's also the guilt and those things and just acknowledging those things within us and going because we want to be with our kids and that's okay because it can feel like you're not also meant to say that or you meant to say everything whatever you say is gonna be wrong I feel like these days but I think yeah I think that's true and I think the other thing that I guess I'm I've got a little bit of perspective on more recently is the really shitty reality that is that our job as mums is to build in our own redundancy right to raise humans who can go out in the world and succeed and be independent and thrive and have their own opinions and beliefs and loves and desires and for them to no longer need us and that's a very real experience for me right now having my oldest daughter just go overseas it's her birthday next week and she's not going to be here and she's I really genuinely feel lucky that I my kids are great and I really enjoy their company I like hanging out with them they're just nice interesting people beautiful people and not having her around is we miss her just because Mm. she's awesome and she's got interesting things to say she's just drafted her first novel wow it's incredible and I did I said to her when I finished this job maybe there's a world where I could come and visit she doesn't need me she's I'm good don't worry about it save the money yeah but what about me yeah but mum <laughs> wants to go on a trip as well so <laughs> exactly. exactly I think I do love spending time with them but I guess what we all want is balance I, I want to spend time with them I want to learn about them I want to listen to them I want to help shape them 
if they're struggling with something, then offer them perspective. All of the things we do, teach them how to have good table manners, teach them how to go to the toilet, like all of those things that we've taught them over all of these years, but also to think for themselves and to not need us. And that's that's a really shitty deal, but it's also essential, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm already, <laughs> my heart's already breaking. I mean, yeah, that kind of. Every day I look up and she's like a little bit more away from me because she's yeah. independent and you're just like, oh, <laughs> this is I so know, hardcore. Fortunately, it has a really long, slow off-ramp. You got yeah. you get a lot of years. Yeah. And my poor parents are still dealing with me. Exactly. My mum says it never stops. I would be really interested in hearing about just the departmental specific editing and children and accommodating children and maybe like a blue sky, wouldn't it be great if this could happen? Have you thought about how it could work better? I'm sure you have been thinking about it for mothers who are editors. What, yeah. what would that look like if you were to talk to a producer and go, this would be better? Yeah, I've got so many, so many ideas in my head. I think we have had some, I've had some times when I've had to take the kids to work. So when I had my office in St. Leonard's, there was a little sofa there and I'd just bring some colouring and a book and a, a toy and a game and a whatever and work for as long as I could until they got bored and had to go, okay, that's, I'm going to have to call it and come home. I think what would be really great is if the broader industry accepted that there is a limit to how long kids Mm. can feasibly be away from their parents at a particular age and not be I know in America it's much much worse in terms of the time the expected work day but this kind of standard 10-hour day and I don't understand why we can't have a standard eight-hour work day I find personally that a lot of my thinking time is done outside the suite that's when I'm problem solving when I'm not sitting there looking at it you need to get distance sometimes to make the best creative choices also I'm not at my best if I'm tired and so last night I walked in the door at seven and had to immediately get onto a zoom for the an executive committee meeting for the guild and I got off that call at about 20 past nine and then I had dinner and then I folded the washing and then I unpacked the dishwasher and then I so I'm going to bed at 11 30 that's probably, I'd say, six nights out of seven I'm going And with no personal time either. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think firstly getting around this notion that an effective day looks like 10 hours spent in an office, that would be the first notion I would try and get rid of, that, that I think we can afford to be a little bit more flexible in our thinking. And, of course, there are times when you need to be there 10 hours or longer. Often it's... When you're hitting deadlines and delivery dates, it might be 12 hours, who knows? But there are also times when it doesn't have to be like that and mm -hmm. where the value of the time away from the desk is overlooked. So I mm -hmm. think that's one of the things that I would advocate for. Mm -hmm. Also in editing, there's a period of time when you are assembling scenes as they're being shot and the director is on set. That time, for example, I don't understand why that can't be flexible if I choose to work from seven in the morning till three for example as long as I'm assembling all of the scenes as they come in it shouldn't really matter to anybody what kind of hours I'm doing but there's still this expected you go time. when they're shooting you edit the hours that so they're as they shoot every day so an editor starts on day two of photography so the yeah. first day's rushes are processed yeah shoot their first day I turn up the next day in my edit suite and I start cutting day one rushes but you're doing the hours that they're doing while they're sh like what are yeah. you so I'm doing 10 hours a day in the suite by myself assembling everything they've shot yeah and you're not so, allowed to start at 7 a.m you have to work. I guess as far as the facilities concerned we're given access so if I wanted if I wanted to from their point of view they I'm sure they'd be fine with me coming in at seven the meetings are set and calls are made right. yeah. these things are all happening within that structured 10-hour period mm -hmm. so there's an expectation that you'll be there from eight till six thirty and often note zooms or screenings are set for either eight o'clock in the morning or five or six at night so you know you're going to be there you've got to be there in time to set up for the eight o'clock meeting and you've got to be there for the screening and then the notes afterwards if you're doing it at the other end of the day and I get that that's also 
because it's collaborative and everybody else on the team have other commitments as well. But family just isn't folded in consideration of the other commitments generally. So I think that's something I would change. Also that I think editors could work from home for the assembly period because then if there's something they need to attend to, they can step out and come back. And as long as they get the work done, that's something that COVID taught us, I think. And it's, again, not that there were any winners in COVID, not that any of us want to go back to living in isolation, but there were some lessons to be learned, I think. There definitely were, Yeah. yeah. And I would like to see a little bit more flexibility and maybe a hybrid kind of work design mm. where you could elect to do some time at home and then some time in the office mm. until you get to that that intense director's cut where you need to be in the room with somebody to check things out and try a bunch of things like that. At that point, I think you do, you are st- mm. stuck with fairly rigid systems, but yeah. I think there can be flexibility around that. Yeah. No, oh, that's interesting. And it's great to hear your clear ideas about how that could be shifted because yeah. that's what I want to be doing is going into each department and going, what would you change? Because yeah. when I read the recent, but now quite a few years old doc from Raising Films, it's interesting that it's mm. very general. Yeah. We need to get specific, department specific, because every department is In so fact, different. Absolutely. In fact, the Editors Guild is having an event on the 21st of May that is all about this. It's about how editors are juggling parenthood and work. That'd be great. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for talking tonight. That's just been beautiful. I've just loved hearing it. See you, Dania. Okay, bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this conversation between me and another incredible mother in the film industry. Whether you're pushing a pram or driving to set, I really appreciate that you've taken this time. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to share it with another friend and also leave us a review telling us why you loved it. You can follow me on Instagram at underscore all Ruby or my website, rubychallenger.com. Mums in Film is produced by myself and Leonie Marsh. My name is Ruby Challenger. And this is Mums in Film.